0: 99 nine at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quancast or online at drquajo.ca Guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state, and This is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to BetterHelp.com backslash SolvingHealthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients and their families because inefficiencies, overwork and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified and just for everyone involved. Quacat Nation. Yes, welcome back. We have a special episode today. A friend of mine who I haven't seen in over a decade, orthopedic surgeon, specialized in sports medicine, done I, I don't know how many fellowships, but he is currently in Houston, Texas, but uh did a lot of training in El Paso and really got to experience COVID firsthand with and within Texas. And I think there was a lot of lessons. That we could we could hear about in terms of the COVID experience that they they had in, in Texas and and deal with some of the misconceptions like for example that it's wide open in that state that nobody's using any restrictions. I think this was a, a very valuable conversation to have the book perspective into things. We also talk about his experience with the El Paso mass shooting. I'll tell you, he, he got me verklempt talking about this and the stories that they were seeing, but hearing how the this team rallied together and the community rallied together to get them through this. It really is a special episode. I hope you guys enjoy it before jumping into it. Solvingwellness.com. You're a healthcare provider. Join our community, yo. Like we're really doing stuff to try and reduce burnout amongst our our healthcare providers so we can provide the optimal care for our patients. So yes, we got yoga, we got fitness classes, we got cooking classes we got nutrition tips stress management you know what i'm saying productivity advice we, we do it all and uh, the real beautiful thing is it's you get that sense of community we're in it together nine dollars and nine nine cents for the year nine dollars and nine nine cents per month but you know what first month is free this bad boy is glorious songwellness.com check it out anyways without further ado we're gonna bring billy in the mix dr bill weiss enjoy this Quadcast Nation, I'm bringing back a blast from the past, a personal blast from the past. We got Dr. Bill Weiss all the way down from Houston, Texas. And uh, I, I'm really excited because I haven't Bill, When was the last time we see we oh, seen man. each man
1: in person? It was probably like 20, <laughs> 2011, 2012, right oh, before my. I left.
0: Oh, my goodness. So like 10 years, it's been like 10 years. Yeah, those are those that are.
1: Uh, I mean, we see each other on social media all the time, but that's it.
0: Yeah, I see. I'm like I seen you 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 busting out some offspring. Yeah, you too. Like, yeah, like it's uh, <laughs> it's been crazy, but uh, it is absolutely awesome to see you, buddy. You too. And um, so, Bill reached out. Uh, as as you can imagine, being down south, his experience with COVID has been a unique one. But but first, maybe Billy, maybe let's let's get into like how you landed. In, in Texas like what was yeah. the journey out there
1: yeah so I mean you and I know each other from our days in O-Town in Ottawa we were residents together you were my senior on the ICU and as I said you know we have a story at the end that I'll, I'll save it uh, but then I, I was trying to figure out what to do and I got a fellowship out in Alberta so I, I packed up my car I left Ottawa went to Edmonton and spent a year there and then had a great opportunity to go to Dallas uh, through Don Johnson one of our sports mentors in Ottawa. I had a great friend, Alan Barber in Dallas, Texas, who I was his last fellow, which is pretty special. So I packed up my car, drove to Texas and, and I really liked it. And I did my fellowship. And then I, I looked back homeward to try to find a job and I couldn't find anything. And so I looked around and scrambled and I found a fellowship here at University of Texas Medical Branch, which is where I, I currently work in foot and ankle. And I took that And came down here for a year. And so now we're getting into 2016. So I graduated 2012. I'm fellowshipping now for four years, can't find a job. And I came down to UTMB and did my fellowship here. And again, looked North to try to find a job. and, And there was nothing. I actually spent three months living at my mom's house on her couch because I got nothing. And so El Paso, Texas, came a call in and said, well, we have a residency program that is the only military and civilian orthopedic residency program in the country and any residency program, but we, we need help. Come on down to El Paso and do sports for us, teach our residents that are military. So I took that and I went to El Paso, Texas, which is the far west point of Texas, uh, very multicultural city, 90% Hispanic, uh, I didn't speak a lick of Spanish, as you can imagine, but it's remarkably similar to French. And I was able to get by and learn some and great people, wonderful experience. And I spent about five years working in El Paso, getting my green card and all that set up uh, because I came into the U.S. as a, as a physician that was a student. There are restrictions on what I can and can't do. So once I was able to do that, the UTMB here, uh, we had always kept in touch. And they had basically left an open invitation that said, Bill, when you can come, come. We want to keep you. And uh, I let them know that hey, I can come now, and they said okay. And right in the middle of COVID, the peak of COVID, I got a new job and moved to back to Houston, Galveston, which is unusual because not too many people were hiring. People are getting laid off, as you know, around this time, and somehow they managed to just say okay, well, come on, we're, we're taking you. So, so that's what brought me here. I was the director of research and sports medicine at Texas tech El Paso for a while, but it was a very small group that was nine. And then when I left, I I left only three colleagues there. Uh, And we can talk about that with relation to that and the shooting in El Paso and everything later. And I I joined a great group here at UTMB where they charged me with building a sports program to help them get, you know, our brand and our sports people onto the mainland as well as around Galveston and into the Houston area. So, so it's a great opportunity, great place. Uh, I'm very happy uh, live on an island, it's great.
0: Wow, what, but what a journey! Bill, like you know, I I still think like a lot of people don't realize as an orthopedic surgeon the kind of journey you have to go through to try and get a job. Like, think about this: how many fellowships do you end up? Having? I you ended up three? doing
1: three fellowships. So my my graduating class was five orthopedic residents, and uh, I think two or three of us were lucky enough to get a job right out of the gates. But two of those have now switched and moved, and one of them is in the U.S. here with me the other moved across the country one it remains on the east coast and the other uh, is in the west coast but has also moved jobs and it took me it took me from 20, 2012 to 2016 to find a job now there are jobs but there were no jobs that i felt you know with my level of training and what i wanted to do that were appropriate i could have come back and worked in small town ontario probably But but that's not what I wanted. And after three fellowships, you know, I wanted to do sports medicine and trauma and in a small community, uh, I'm not going to get to do a lot of that. So that's a big factor that we talk about at the Orthopedic Association. I'm still I'm still a board member of the Canadian Orthopedic Association Association and the editor of one of our of our journals. I'm this the current events editor. Uh, So I'm still very involved in Canada and what goes on in Canada and very up to date with orthopedics in Canada.
0: But it, I mean, it just I mean, I don't want to go off too off too much on a cha- uh, on a tangent, but like
1: mm-hmm. the
0: amount of training you go this far, damn straight you're gonna do a job that you want to do, man.
1: Yeah, like, nine I, nine t- years, t- nine years after yeah, that school,
0: like like legit, and the skill set, like you don't want those skills to to dampen. So no, uh, no I completely appreciate. Uh, what uh what you're doing but we we need to that's another that's another yeah it's a whole other show and it's still a
1: problem and a bigger problem now after covid i'll tell you no
0: for sure so yeah covid man like you you got the texas angle on this bad boy yeah and i mean where to start like Like, what was it like, say, even in the in the beginning phases? Like, I think I guess you would have been in El Paso in the Uh, first wave.
1: I was. Yeah. I mean, I'll take you back when it started. Uh, I was in El Paso and just like everywhere else, things were, you know, typical infections were rising. People were worried, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and we in March, 2020 went into, you know, a phase where we stopped elective surgery for a period, which, you know, made me a trauma surgeon essentially for the next three weeks. And again, we were a small group. So, you know, we had one guy that did hand and we had a hand call. We had one guy that did peds and did peds call. And then we had a trauma guy who did the trauma call. And I was the guy that filled in. I did trauma call. I did peds call. I did hand call. And so when the elective problem happened, I was really the only one largely affected because most of my practice was supposed to be elective, but it became peds trauma, adult trauma, and whatever. Uh, So that was a big change for me. But, you know, we rode that out just like everyone else and going into the summer of this last year, you know, things were fine. But then, as you know, things changed and El Paso became the hotspot. Uh, And I, I recently just reviewed some stuff, but you know right now texas is is not even in the top 10 in states that have number of infections but at that time we were considered the hotspot we were i mean we had some of the biggest case loads in all of the united states at a while in el paso probably approaching late august september so so things changed a lot then we had 10 refrigerator trucks come into town for bodies and they were parked outside. And that was a big deal in the news, 10 trucks. Cause we were overflowing. Our morgues were overflowing. We had tents in front of every hospital starting in the summer that remained throughout that. And it was a huge deal. We, we took on at the peak, uh, you know, we have a capacity in the El Paso region of about 300 ICU beds and we filled them up. Uh, and I, again, I found some numbers today, just looking, but you know, in the end of, October, we had 200 ICU patients and hundred of them on ventilators. And by November we had maxed out and had 300 ICU beds full and 250 of those were ventilated. So like our capacity in that region was full. We were sending patients to San Antonio and Dallas to just get people care because we were full mm-hmm. and, I guess the question that you know we can talk about is is why did El Paso get hit like that? Why were we a hotspot? Why were we? Yeah. You know, NBC News called us like a disaster zone. Like this is the worst case scenario. It's happening in El Paso right now. Did
0: did it feel like it? it
1: like
0: you you know like sometimes like you you, you know you're surrounded by this chaos, but it, you
1: know sometimes it's not as advertised. But like yeah, we felt it. I mean, we we knew uh, even at the beginning. You know, we went into a lockdown as well, and. You know, I remember our trauma director telling us to keep a lab coat in our car just in case you were out and someone pulled you over. You could show them that oh, I'm going to work kind of thing. Uh, and so we felt it and, and me particularly being an elective surgeon, all that stopped. So, you know, all my sports patients went away. All my sports surgeries went away. And what I did was trauma call and trauma surgery. So it, for me, I felt it and we knew stuff was different. But then it went to another level. Uh, come the end of summer into the fall, and you know, then we started talking about redeployments and stuff like you've seen in other places. And as the probably the one guy in our group that was not linked to a, a trauma service directly, you know, I was probably the guy that would have gotten sent away. But because we were only four, we couldn't really afford to send people elsewhere. I mean, if if I was out of the the loop for ortho, then you know, then now they're three, and that's a lot of coverage. El Paso is. You know, just to take you a step back, I mean, El Paso is about a million people. There's a city up the road about 20 minutes called Las Cruces. That's about another half million people. And and then right across the border in Mexico is Juarez. That's our sister city. And they're like three to 4 million people. And we are the only level one trauma center for 300 miles. So we're covering like five to 6 million people. And you only have four orthopedic surgeons at the level one. So, you know, we're, we're busy and taking one person out of that rotation really affects the group. So you know, so fortunately the group could not be broken up and I didn't have to be redeployed to the ICU or something where, as you've heard the stories and, and I'm see, I'm sure seen the stories yourself, I mean, people, we had, uh, we had a whole other ICU for COVID patients. We had, uh, you know, nurses coming and going and physicians, and we had the military helping us out in El Paso. We turned our convention center into a hospital uh, to, to back up with all the tents that we had. So so it was a, it was a huge deal. There was definitely a change in the fall that you noticed that things are bad. The the mm-hmm. parking lots were now tent hospitals. There were morg ic morgue trucks in the parking lots, and you know things were were nasty.
0: That must have been like Like you were you guys were the news that we were
1: hearing. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, New we York were situation. we were the worst case scenario a few months after New York. And I mean, if you go on YouTube and Google El Paso COVID, there's like 10 NBC nightly news and CBC nightly news, top stories, El Paso, the crisis, blah, 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 you know, COVID mm-hmm. in El Paso. And it, it was, we were the hotspot in the entire world for a while.
0: And, you know, you mentioned it's 90% Hispanic. Yeah. You know, and, and we talked many a times, like we, you got, to, it sounded like you got to listen to the episode with Dennis Kim yep. about uh, his experience in in LA County there. But uh, like it's clear, even in, in in Ontario, socioeconomics is a huge impact. Multi generational homes, huge yep. impact. That, and that's know, exactly what we
1: saw. That's what uh, you saw. Not well. I mean, eighty to ninety percent of the population of El Paso is Hispanic, but also ninety percent of the victims of COVID were Hispanic, and. Uh, I mean, it it is a simple numbers game, maybe, but there definitely was talk of, you know, the multi-generational houses and stuff like that. I mean, I know families and again, on those news stories, you see the families who had like six family members pass away from COVID because they were all linked. And, you know, the the Hispanic culture is very much centered about family. And so, you know, holidays and stuff, that's what they do is they get together and they they hang out and spend time together and that's hugely important in, in their culture. And, and that's, you know, one of the main, I think factors that drove the infection in El Paso is that, you know, y- you live and you spend your time with family.
0: And and what was, I mean, we talked about it a little bit, uh, Bill, but like what was some of the restrictions that was happening within Like El Paso or Texas, because, yeah, you're having certain levels of lockdown. I mean, that's a
1: very, very difficult question to answer. And it, it changed at various times. And Texas itself as a whole tried to remain largely open, which I'm sure you remember. But the and this was one of the issues in El Paso is that the El Paso mayor said, no, we're having a problem. We need to shut down and lock down. And so there was a huge political battle between the mayor and the state saying stay open you know businesses blah 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 and no shut down and people are dying so that and that went back and forth so el paso went through many phases of of lockdown shutdowns even a curfew for a period of time where you know no one was allowed out after 9 p.m. or 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. so it was very variable and one of the things that did happen is it, within the restaurant and bar industry Uh, you know, restaurants were allowed to stay open and bars were not unless 50% of their income was from food. And so what you saw is that some bars were, you know, pushing food and selling food and selling drinks based on food. And so a lot of them were able to sneak in under this restaurant title and and remain somewhat open. And and we think that, that that's part of why it got so bad is, you know, we still had contact in the community, within families, within within restaurants, even though they were at limited capacity. And, and then there was an ongoing political battle, which, you know, as you know, any city that's undergoing a political upheaval like that, people are going to take sides and, and not listen. And, and I mean, that's what happened. The other side of it is the, the proximity to Juarez. And even though the borders were closed, there are many U.S. citizens that cross that border every day. And so people were coming and going regardless of closed borders. So, you know, how many how many people would go to Juarez and come back with an infection? And I can tell you watching the numbers around that time, you know, we would be seeing uh, numbers of, you know, 50 infections a day, 100 infections a day in El Paso, maybe one or two deaths in El Paso. But then you look at the numbers from Juarez and they don't have the, capa- the capability to test. So they would report deaths and they're reporting like 100 deaths in a day and and like 10 infections. And so city
0: of 3 million. Yeah,
1: exactly. So you know that something is going on there. There's way more infections than we can appreciate. And the numbers of death alone are telling you that the infection is rampant over there. So so these people are coming back and forth. And one of the things that happens a lot in El Paso and Juarez is when something is bad over there, they will bring it to the border, especially if it's a US citizen, and basically do an ambulance drop and say, hey, we got a guy who's got this, come pick them up, take him to your center. And so these guys would probably do that once or twice a day, the ambulance attendants, guys and gals. And we would get trauma, we would get infections, blah, 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 bad stuff. But during that period, they were going to the border like 10 times a day to pick up people in respiratory distress who most likely had COVID, but hadn't been tested and bringing them in and taking them to UMC and, and trying to help them. But the border drops, as we called them, went up significantly during that period. So so the proximity to the border is a big Player here, and uh, El Paso Juarez is one of the biggest multi. It is the biggest multinational and multilingual community in the world, uh, definitely in the Western Hemisphere. And I think there was a lot of that at play that that really contributed.
0: Yeah, I mean, two points. O- obviously, the politicalization of of COVID is one of the Achilles' heels because mm. uh, honestly, it doesn't allow you to follow the data. Doesn't no. allow you to follow the science, which is detriment to so many like it costs lives as far as absolutely the second thing that i hear when 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 it comes to you know response is the importance of like that regional approach like maybe the situation i I mean i don't know maybe the situation in houston or dallas was maybe different but El Paso sounded like was on fire yeah that i think that's the
1: point right there is that el paso is not dallas el paso is not houston it is still texas but it is very different
0: Yeah, because we saw that clearly in in Ontario. I mean, throughout, you know, I'm certain in in a lot of areas within Canada, but in Ontario, the GTA, specifically like Scarborough, Peel, were like on fire. Whereas in Kingston, Timmins, even Ottawa to a certain degree, you know, for a large part of depending on which wave you're talking about we were okay mm-hmm. but um yeah it's just it, it really goes to to show how important it is to kind of think about what is that region doing what are the resources that are needed to keep things under control like do you feel bill like they, the resources were being funneled to El Paso like to They to were and-
1: once once things were starting to peak yes Texas and the United States did uh, funnel resources there and that included Uh, like traveling nurse type people who would come in and take care of people and as well, physicians and, and particularly El Paso has a very large military component. It has one of the biggest army bases in the U S and so army physicians that I worked closely with there, you know, they were being deployed to come and help. So there was, there was definitely a funneling of resources, uh, uh, but maybe not an address of, to the problem, which I know you guys have hit on, which is largely the socioeconomic factors I think that play into this. And I mean, that that doesn't change overnight, obviously, but but that's one of the things that I think made El Paso particularly vulnerable. Most of the people there don't have insurance and, you know, they they they're really limited in seeking care because of that. And even though there are programs to help them in El Paso, because we know that a lot of them won't do it because they know it costs money and they can't afford it. And so they wait until the last minute. And then, you know, oftentimes it's too late, as you know, very well.
0: Absolutely. And then also like, you know, how are you going to take time off work? I'm sure being in Texas, there's no paid.
1: I would imagine there's no paid leave. Um, there are programs, but most of these people don't have access to them because a lot of them work jobs that are under the table. I mean, they, they don't, yeah, 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 they don't have, yeah, they, they work for cash. Yeah,
0: no, that's a very good point. And so like just walking through that time. So that's the fall. Did things get better? Like over, over the, like, you know, past fall, winter, into 2021? Yeah, so
1: right, I left El Paso in in late October of last year, kind of right at the peak, honestly. And, you know, I I will say that it didn't really feel great to leave my colleagues at that time. But for me and my family, this was a better opportunity and something that we'd always pushed for, and it was able to happen, and UTMB was able to make it happen. So so we went. Uh, but yeah, that was around the peak. And so going into November, that's those numbers I was telling you when we kind of maxed out the ICU beds, uh, you know, we, we struggled there, but they, they made it through. And after that things started to decline and, and things are now a lot better there. Uh, the, the case rates are down, which, but you know, the case rates don't mean much, but the ICU admissions, the, the people on ventilators have all come down significantly and now are more in line with the rest of the United States, which generally is doing well. And and the interesting thing about Texas that I know you probably wanted to discuss is that we opened relatively early and we've gone to, you know, a state where we're, we're, we're calling it open, but. You know, I'll tell you that here in, uh, in Galveston, and I know in El Paso too, people are still wearing masks. So my institution, while, you know, we, we don't require masks in our outpatient clinical settings, we still require masks in hospital settings in our five hospitals. So, you know, while we are not, we're not, we're open, but we're not, we're not back to normal. We're definitely still masking. We're definitely still distancing. People are still being careful. My institution has given over 200,000 vaccines itself Our vaccination rates, you know, when we look between the two, Canada has really pushed the first vaccine and you're, I think, approaching 70% now, which is great. Texas is about 50% fully vaccinated. We don't have as many one-timers as you do. And there's a little more resistance, I think, in the US to vaccines, but we're over 50% one times and over 50% two times. So fully vaccinated. And I think that's why it's been successful is we have a very large vaccination program that has been widespread and we're, we're getting to the point where they think we may reach herd immunity by the end of the summer. So even though we're open, we're still being careful and we have precautions in place. And Galveston County where I live now, I just looked today cause I knew it would come up. We reported six new cases of COVID in the entire County, which is a huge County part of Southern Houston and everything below that. And we have only 300 active cases.
0: So that's, a, that's, if it's includes all of Houston,
1: that's, a, it doesn't include all of Houston. Okay. Houston is a separate County. Uh, Galveston yeah. County is kind of part of South Houston, and then down onto the island, which is in the Gulf of Mexico.
0: Well, either way, the, the
1: but the, but Houston itself are... has always also yeah been been pretty good. Probably would report similar numbers. I didn't look them up though.
0: No, no, absolutely. And just this timestamp at people. This we're doing this on uh, June thirtieth, twenty twenty one. Yeah. So I think you brought up some really important points because I think the perception when you think of texas is that everything is wide open and wild west yeah and because like you know alberta as of tomorrow no restrictions like back to normal yeah and so when you say like um outside the hospital setting though is there any mandates for anything like do you have to be there there
1: so no there are not mandates and and you know government in in The United States and Texas in particular is different. And, you know, there's state and local and the state has basically and this was one of the things in El Paso maintained: No, we're not closing. We're not doing crazy things. We're life as normal. So the state is still towing that line. And so everything is open. However, what you see is that not just hospitals, but many, many businesses are also requiring masks still. And I would say it's probably 50 50. You know, there, there's 50-50 businesses that are still requiring masks and distancing and 50-50 people that if you look around are still wearing masks inside and 50% are not. So it, it is still a mix. It's still happening, and not to the degree that it was, but people are still being careful, uh, even though we're more than 50% completely vaccinated as well.
0: And as you mentioned, cases remain low. Yeah. Um,
1: that's yeah, I really- mean, even since the opening, they have. And I know you guys saw you know early on like the Texas Rangers had a game and it was full mm-hmm. and people were freaking out about it and and rightfully so and in Canada the hockey playoffs there's nobody in the stands so you know that was a big stark difference and and so far knock on wood things continue to be to be good given that people are being smart i think and yeah. and listening you know within reason uh, although as up there not everybody believes that masks are useful and not everybody believes in vaccines and and mm-hmm. You know, to some degree, that's their opinion uh, that we don't need to get into because I know you and I agree on these things, but yeah. but that's what's happening.
0: No, that's a, I, I think this is really golden information because once again, I think the, the perception is not necessarily reality, uh, at least from what you're seeing there. And I, I think this is important.
1: Yeah, to, to speak specifically to I know things that are happening there is our school's were open to finish much of the year and our kids were in school. Uh, And I know that's an ongoing issue that mutual friends of ours are active in with the Ontario physicians groups. Uh, And, and yeah, we, we had open schools for a while. There were sports at schools. Uh, I mean, things are are happening and and nothing has gotten crazy here. You know, we're, we're still here. We're still Texas and, you know, we still have people.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I mean, uh, I mean, I don't want to get into the school thing because it brings. Yeah, I know soul, it's a big hot button is, but, issue, but yeah. But I want to say it's it's nice to see that, you know, in terms of the values that Texas has, has established, they're gonna they're gonna do what's best for their kids and. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think- it
1: is partly that, but it's also, as you know, partly Texas, and and Texas is a very unique state in that you know they're kind of the well, I'm gonna do what I want to do state and. Yeah. And if you don't like it, that's fine with us. And yeah. and that's the way Texas has always been and always will be. And it's good in many ways. Uh, uh, and yes, we said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to open and do these things. And fortunately, it has worked out. But I think the the credit goes to the people that, you know, made sure everybody had the vaccine as much as possible and the people that continue to still be careful.
0: Yeah, no, very good points, Bill. I, I want to ask you I haven't been able to get this out of my mind. So I just want to, this might come out of left field. How do you feel about this job situation? Like being doing all this shit training in Canada, like being born and bred and, you know, not being able to find that
1: job. Yeah. In the, in, in, your, it's disappointing. It's, I mean, like, you know, I love I, Canada, you know, I love hockey and Canadian football and I love Alberta and, nothing would make me happier than to go and live in Alberta and and do orthopedics in Edmonton or something like that. Yeah. And it's very disappointing that, that that isn't really in the cards. Uh, it's something that I told you I was still part of the Canadian Orthopedic Association. I'm the editor of current events for our bulletin that comes out quarterly. And I mean, it's still a big issue that we talk about all the time is, you know, the job numbers are not up. And and this is now getting into my opinion, but you know, my opinion is that the system just can't support that many surgeons yeah. and we need them. Uh, I mean, there's work. demand, for is them. There. there's demand, but the system doesn't want to pay for them or can't pay for them. And, and that's really the issue. And that's what's limiting the hiring back of our own home trained home bred and born surgeons. Uh, it's just that the system can't bring us back. And so a lot of us, bounce to the U S and you know, the truth is life here is not that different from up there. And, and so some of us say, okay, I'm just going to stay. I mean, like I told you off camera, like I can do anything here. I can do shoulders, knees, hips, foot, and ankle trauma. I do it all. And I like that. In Canada, when I had opportunities to interview for jobs, it was rural general orthopedics or we need you to be our knee guy. and that, But that's all you're going to be able to do because we can't afford to have other things. So it's very frustrating and, and it's still a problem. And, and now because of COVID, there is a huge backlog of what's now considered lifestyle type um, surgeries. A lot of what we do, what I do. That needs to be done. And I, I mean, I don't even know. I saw an estimate that we were three to four years behind up there now in terms yeah. of like knee replacements, ACLs, stuff like that. Not life or death, granted, but lifestyle surgery. People need this. So, I mean, that's that's something that's coming to the forefront now, but it, it's frustrating. And, you know, I guess I'm over it now, but uh, and I'm happy in Texas. I
0: just couldn't, I, I had trouble shaking you because I'm like, we're boys. I haven't seen you in 10 years. And I'm thinking, man,
1: what I so never intended to-, to stay. I tell people all the yeah. time. I never, I thought I was going to come down for a one year fellowship and go back home. And yeah. and it just never worked out. I never intended to stay. And that's why it was so hard for me to stay. Yeah. Um, but it was it, not the intention.
0: It just breaks my soul a little bit that we, we, we there isn't a way, but I, I, I mean, once again, we. I think there's going to need to be some creative options when it comes to these the, the amount. Well, I'll of tell you what demands. I think.
1: I mean, this now is now we're making this a multinational community, and so now our orthopedic community. You know, I, I'm in there and doing stuff and I'm in Texas. So now we have a voice in Texas and I know there's voices in Michigan and other States. So, so now we've gone from a Canadian orthopedic group to a Canadian orthopedic group that is now spread all over North America. And so we, we can draw on that. And I think use lessons, you know, Again, going back to things that happened down here, like that El Paso shooting, I was involved with. You know, that doesn't happen in Canada, but that's something that you know I can come back to the COA and say, "Listen, this is what we learned from my experience. Let's look at what we've done in Canada, and and we did that in one of our issues. I wrote a follow-up article to something Alan Liu from Ottawa wrote about the bus accident that was happening in Ottawa there a few years ago. And so I wrote a similar paper about you know what happened in El Paso and what we can learn from it, what we can all do to to have you know more preparation for these sorts of events as they become more frequent.
0: Yeah, man. Like just to have that added perspective. And, uh, I'm going to say hi to Alan for you, actually. I, I, yeah, see you should, I see him in Trombleau all the time. Yeah,
1: I know. He's, He's a got a great skier. family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He um, is there growing teeth. Oh my goodness.
0: Um, but I mean, we got We can't not talk about that El Paso shooting, like what that yeah. was like to experience. And like, especially once again, being a Canadian where, you know, for me, I, I mean, I'll speak for myself. Like Dennis, the whole Dennis has of,
1: built this up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. How many like, gunshot wounds did you and Dennis? Yeah, speak? exactly. Like and I, I mean, I saw probably two in my five to six years of residency oh, fellowship. Oh man,
0: being at the trauma center still, I'll I'll say maybe I've seen in fifteen years half a dozen, like yeah. where I was actually involved in. But man I'll
1: tell you that I saw more gunshot wounds in my first month in El Paso than I did in my entire career to that point.
0: Like honestly and that it must have been It's like, a
1: big change. Yeah.
0: And like so like whether you want to talk about just seeing the gun violence in general or the El Paso situation like or the the, the well, mass there- shooting
1: I mean, it's related. Uh, we do see a lot more violence. It's not as bad as it used to be. There was a time when El Paso was very violent, when the cartel wars were going on. And it wasn't so much El Paso, it was across the border, but it would come to us for treatment. Uh, but that de- has declined significantly. Uh, the shooting was was obviously out of the blue and, you know, not something you can ever prepare for. But I, I was actually on leave still from the birth of one of my sons. And, uh, you know, I got a text message from our director saying, hey, if you're in town, something's happening, head to the hospital. And I was like, oh man, that, that's not good. And so I, I went in, I went to my wife and I said, Hey, look, I think I got to go. Something's up. And she was like, yeah, okay, go. So, so I went in and I like, nobody was there at that point. You know, the shooting started at like 1040 in the morning. I think I got the message at like 1045, 1050. I got there and I went immediately to the OR cause I knew our, our trauma surgeon was on call. I went into his OR and said, Hey, what's up? And he, he, he hadn't even heard about it. He was in a case, doing a hip nail. And he was like, I don't know what's up. Uh, The the junior got called to the emergency department. He hasn't come back yet. So, so they didn't even know. So, so I said, okay, well, I'm going to go to the ED and see what's up. So I I went out of the OR and to the ED, which is obviously right beside it as usual. And I mean, it was chaos. Uh, You know, the first patient arrived without any warning. She, she was picked up by somebody in a car. She was shielding her kid who was covered in blood and they just dropped her off at the ED door. And she literally walked in. And about 10 minutes later, she was dead. She had a massive wound in her shoulder that our trauma surgeon tried and he couldn't save her. And so that just started it. There were three patients that walked in from civilian vehicles, no triage, no treatment, except for basics, first aid from a bystander dropped off at the door and in they come. And, and so the ED is figuring out that, Hey, something is happening. So, so I immediately you know saw one of the general surgery residents that knows me and she said, Hey, Dr. Weiss, I got three patients I need you to see. And I was like, okay, let's go. And so we went and saw three trauma patients and kind of evaluated them together. You know, there were two of my residents there and one of our nurses was working the ED. So they were also seeing patients found me. And so we just started to put together a list of like, you know, here's, here's who we've seen. This is what's up. They need to go to the OR. They don't because nothing had happened. These people were just dropped at the door. So, so we kind of created a multidisciplinary team and looked at all the patients in the ED and then decided, yes, surgery or no, you know, monitor, wait, retriage. And so we we have a program there that is the only joint military and civilian program in the United States in any way, but it's orthopedic. So 90% of our residents are military surgeons. So they responded, of course, the call went out and, you know, they all dropped everything and there were like 10 of us including our civilian residents as well that just descended on the university medical center and, and started seeing patients and doing stuff. And my, my trauma colleague was already there on call. Two of our other colleagues who were in town also came in. Uh, We were nine surgeons at that time in ortho, but only four of us were in town and all of us came in uh, just to try to help. And that day we, I think we did four or five surgeries. All of us did a few. And then over the course of the next week, uh, you know these patients went in and out of the OR. Obviously, um, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, it. I, I said in the article, and I tell everybody, it's not something you ever want to be a part of. But you know, I was glad that I could be there and and help and do something. And and these situations are always very fluid. You just you know they they don't work like the textbooks, and that's what I think is the main takeaway points: is preparing to to have abnormal situations and practicing and then being fluid. When you don't get that field triage and you don't get the pre-treatment from the ambulance before the patient arrives, you know, you got to start from square one and and you go from there,
0: man. There's, I got so many things to say, but just to that latter point, because I don't know if this is really uh, um, emphasized in medical training about that being agile and fluid. Cause like, it is not, you, you see, I mean, I come from internal medicine, man. Like when, when these, when the kids, When something's not textbook, you can see the wheels start to swarm. I don't even know what that's another.
1: Well, so now just today, just today, we had a discussion in our academic session on disaster management because it needs to be part of our curriculum. And in orthopedics, it's not. Mm -hmm. So we had literally a talk today from one of our military residents here. He's from the Air Force, and he gave a talk on just general disaster management which needs to be discussed at all levels of medicine because it's not just ortho, you know, internal medicine, general surgery, plastics, ENT, we all were there. Mm-hmm. So we need that help.
0: You know, hundred percent. Cause I mean, not only like, yes, disaster management, but also having that mindset of like, how do you like, is there a framework for being agile? Like where are you going to put your energy? Are you able to triage in the moment? like knowing that you're not going to give somebody necessarily the optimal care that they would normally receive mm-hmm. if you had more time and resources. Like this is a lot of um, like, I don't even know how you would. Well, teach this is triage.
1: This. Yeah. And it's, that's what like, it, that's what it comes down to is, you know, looking at your resources that you have available and using them effectively for the greatest outcome and being in a hospital setting, we have lots of resources Whereas in the field they don't. And you know, that's I guess that's where triage needs to be flexible because in the field it might be all about transport. And if you don't have transport, then you gotta get the six people that you can save transported. But in the hospital, you know, you're there. And and then the resources become OR oh, time and blood, for example. Like we went through 110 units of blood that day. Oh, uh, I mean, they there they're there are resources you need to think about and manage to Optimize your outcomes. And it, it is a very different mindset from what you and I usually practice, which is to save everybody, mm-hmm. because that's our goal. But in this kind of scenario, you have to start thinking, well, I, I can't save that person or, or the resources to save that person are too much. And that's really something that we are not familiar with from a civilian medical training. The military guys do get some of that. But even for them, it's not easy to you know, decide that I'm going to save Jimmy and not Johnny because Johnny is is too resource heavy for us right now. We can't bag him while we transport him, for example. So, you know, that that takes up a man.
0: Wow. Like that, that must that must have been like, what was your what was your headspace at during the, <laughs> like like when you walked through the door? Like because I can speak selfish, like personally, that often when you're in those moments, you're not really thinking like you're, you're just to, totally, you're into it. Just you're doing. totally, full Yeah, it. You're just that, doing. I think
1: that's what it was. It was like, you know, it was like game day. It was like, you know, you're not thinking you're just like, okay, well, you don't think about what's happening. You just know that this is in front of you and what can we do about this? Okay. Do it. And okay. What's next? Let's do that. You just go into that mode, which we all have of, you're just focused on, what you can do to make the best out of a bad situation and not thinking too much about the rest of it. And, you know, my trauma director there, he, he was, he was unfortunately not there at the time. He was on a plane to get back to El Paso and then he got back to El Paso that day and he ran around and, you know, did all the things that directors do. And then he tells us the story because we had a lot of breakdowns about this afterwards, you know, the impact of it on us and talks. And he, he literally on the drive home saw a sign that said El Paso strong and had to pull over because he said I, I just broke out into tears. Mm. And I mean, you don't you don't have time to process it in the moment. You just do, and then later is when you process. And and that was you know something that we we also talked a lot about. We have a trauma conference every year. That that year was almost entirely about this event and and events like it and how to deal with it and what to do and the impact that it has on on all of us, the community, but the physicians and nurses and and the staff in the hospital who are in there. You know, cleaning up the blood, turning over the rooms, restocking the shelves so that the next one can come in. I mean, they, they, they're just as much a part of that as any of us.
0: Yeah. And what was what was like the post post uh, post uh, shooting response within your te- within the teams? Was there a lot of like, you know, burnout or
1: like negative
0: impact that way.
1: I don't think there was a lot of negative impact, but burnout was definitely something we talked about and, and definitely something that, that impacted us all, especially as a small orthopedic group, you know, we, with only four of us, all of us were involved and, you know, all of us were taking care of these patients, but there was definitely, you know, a a factor. And that's one of the resources you need to think about is not just, you know, restocking the, the bandages and the dressings, but your, your personal resources, your people, you know, that, that get get worked over by this and and need to recover. I mean, this is not a sprint, it's a marathon and, you know, people get tired and and so we we talked a lot about that. You know, we had meetings with the residents and staff all together, like open forums just to talk and you, know, you know, a lot of the emergency residents spoke up about what, you know, what they saw that day and how they weren't expecting it and the impact that it had on them and our our trauma surgeon who treated that woman I told you about who came in at the beginning, he, he actually presented to Congress on it and the impact that it had on him. And and this was a high powered rifle. So a lot of it was focused on, you know, high powered rifles and how maybe those shouldn't be available to the public. And so there was definitely a lot of fallout and burnout type discussions. Um, And then, you know, the poor thing for El Paso was that we got through that and literally a year to the day, uh, you know, then we started to ramp up our COVID, and so El Paso suffered that second hit, and, and so the physicians in El Paso are, are certainly you know exhausted and and overworked and and just you know tired of, mm-hmm. of facing these dire situations.
0: Wow, I I mean honestly, I couldn't imagine, especially like that's going to be long lasting impact on the citizens of El Paso, and and on the staff. In your opinion, Bill, was there any any change or like a positive that came out of any of this kind of chaos? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's always a positive to find. And I I think the positives we took from it were just how the community rallied around itself. And, you know, I, at that time I was the team doctor for our professional sports team and, you know, we had a game that night actually. And, you know, I, I remember the trainer texting me saying, Hey, you know, I know something's up. I hope you're okay. And if you can't make it, you know, we we understand kind of thing. Like the team knew that things were going down and they ended up canceling that game, of course, because we weren't going to have any gatherings after something like that. So the community rallied around that. There were many rallies at the soccer stadium. And, and the first game that we went back, I remember it was like hugely emotional. Like the 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 fans at, at I think, 22 minutes, because at that time, 22 people had died in the shooting. At 22 minutes, all the lights in the stadium went out. And, and the only thing lighting was people's phones and the players like kept playing. And it was like a really surreal moment. And, you know, then finally one of our guys scored this, you know, really amazing goal that I wrote about in the COA thing that I told you about. And it was just like this big release of like, okay, we're okay. We're back kind of thing. Mm. Uh, so this, the city felt it and they still talk about it. It's still something, obviously, I mean, it's a huge thing that affected the community and the physicians and nurses and staff involved. I mean, it's, some, it's a mark that El Paso will never, never get over. Uh, it's always going to be remembered and something that they're going to look back at. But there was a lot of positive from the community, the support. There was a, a guy who lost his wife. He was all alone. He had no family and he lost his wife in the shooting. And like 300 people showed up for her funeral and like lined the streets around the church just to support this guy who nobody even knew. I mean, there are, there are a lot of great stories like that that came out of it. Uh, you know, a great community.
0: I mean, it really does sound like a, a special community. Like I I mean I, I mean, I think it says a lot from you to be able to speak so highly of it, being, you know, I mean, you've been around. Um and uh but I, I you know personally now got a pretty soft spot <laughs> for the the people of El Paso just here in here in uh that they've gone They're have gone. they a very the special years. group.
1: And I, I used to tell people that it reminded me a little bit of Canada because I was working for a state hospital, which is a lot like Canadian healthcare, but it's a very multicultural, very accepting group of people. I mean, like I was telling you off camera, it's 80 to 90% Hispanic. I was the minority, uh, but nobody cared. I mean, they, they treated me like anyone would. They were super nice and supportive. And I still talk to a lot of them. They still text me and email me and ask me how I'm doing, how my family is and ask me advice. And I mean, they're, they're very, it's a very unique place.
0: Yeah, I bet, I bet also just speaking of family too, after these moments like these, like you hug wifey a little bit more, you hug the boys yeah. a little bit tighter, yeah. you know what I mean? It's one of those things that uh, it's hard not to. Yeah, it to has impacts present. on all of us.
1: Yeah, no, it does. And, and you're right. I mean, you, you appreciate that a little more. One of the stories that came out of that shooting was there was a, a, a couple and three of their children there. And, you know, the father was shot, shielding the mother and the the baby and the mother is the one I told you about. And she was shot shielding the baby and the baby survived. They lost one of their other children, I believe in the shooting. And the other child was just taken out by some stranger who it took them months to identify him, but he just grabbed the kid and saved him. And I mean, that's, I guess just goes to show there was another lady, you know, there's so many stories like this. I could go on for hours, but one of the ladies that we treated, her shoulder is all blown open. Old lady only spoke Spanish. And, you know, I can understand enough Spanish to know what she was saying. And, you know, she, she told us that she just remembers her husband shielding her. And she remembers looking at his face and knowing he was dead. And that was the last thing she remembered. And we just said, you're safe now and didn't know what else to say while we were putting her to sleep, you know, like, what do you do? It was, it was, it was a crazy, crazy day. And then stories, there are tons of them like that.
0: Yeah. I, I, getting a little overclamped, thinking about all these
1: uh and i do too i mean it it was a very emotional day and you go into your doctor mode and you just do your job but then you think about you know that little lady and you know how she just told you that it's crazy
0: and i don't know what what it is too about the idea of people really shield like that instinct for people to shield their family and
1: there's a lot of stories of people like saving other people not just family just you know, getting people out and throwing stuff at the shooter just to distract him and, you know, people shielding their loved ones. And yeah, there's a lot of great stories that came out of it that are unfortunately sad as well, but just show like the power of the human spirit, I guess, you know, how we would like to just help each other, even if you're not family.
0: I I mean, I guess part of that hearing that too, is just kind of just warms my heart too that people it's like you said that human spirit that looking out after each other
1: i mean that's that's how we are and i think a lot of us deny it but i think when it comes down to it most of us would do that for you know somebody that you don't even know i mean it's another human being and i think we need to remember that and and get back to that like just because you're not related or you don't know them doesn't mean you shouldn't help them and anybody in need is somebody who you can help
0: yeah and i I think if i you know if i'm being completely honest too bill it's like when i when i think of covid this is probably why some of us including myself have been pretty adamant about trying to stick up for those that can't stick up for themselves uh racialized communities yeah uh, the children and yep. and just the people
1: who are talking to their family on the ipad for the last time that you're doing i yeah, know like and
0: just because
1: unimaginable you
0: know, like it just someone needs to say something and yeah um, you know, just to sit, well, on we side all need lights. to
1: say something. That's the thing I think. Yeah. And, you know, this is a hot topic that I know is close to your heart too, but in orthopedics, we've been talking about the lack of women, the lack of minorities in orthopedics and how can we fix that? And, and I think the greatest thing that I've heard so far about that is that the guys like me that are there, the old white guys, we're the ones that need to spur the change. You know, you can't do it all. And our colleagues can't do it all. They're already being held down. It's the people at the top that need to say, no, this is wrong. And we need to fix this and we need to all be the same. I mean, we're not all the same, but we can all be treated the same.
0: Yeah. And and as you kind of, we talked on a bit too, like having that level of diversity, like not, you know, not just race, but sex or whatever, but like yeah. just diversity in general. Like you, you become stronger, you're more, yeah. your perspectives shifts. You, you see, yeah. you have that wider lens. And um, I honestly, I think it's, imp- I mean, I, I don't know if you know this, but like uh, I start up tomorrow as department head for. I did field. hear
1: that. Congratulations and, uh, thanks, on the buddy. podcast. <laughs> well deserved. Well deserved. Uh, thanks, buddy. But, yeah, but that's exactly what we mean. People like Quad need to be in charge to help remove some of these barriers for everyone.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I won't lie to you. It was definitely, was a, a driver post uh, like, I mean, a lot of, we're all woken up a little bit post George Floyd, but that was yeah. the thing for me was like, yeah. you know, you get a seat at the table, be able to advocate um, yeah. and be a role model for,
1: for many. Well, you, and, you need to advocate, but everyone needs to advocate for you. And I think that's the the key that came out of our discussions around orthopedics anyways, is yeah. that those people at the top are the ones that need to start the change. There are yeah. still many programs in the U S that have no females, yeah. none. And that that's unusual. And so those, those programs need to start somewhere and it starts with the people making the decisions. Mm-hmm. And if you can get yourself into that position or a female can get onto that committee, great. But until that time, the people that are there are the ones that need to do what's right. And, and that falls on everyone.
0: Amen, brother. Amen. Listen, Bill, I, you get, I, <laughs> You you had me weeping during this call. You had me laughing. You're never going to want me back. This was like, uh, I don't know. It just, um, like, I can't tell you how much this meant to me, actually, Bill, just because, you know, one, I haven't seen you in a long time. Two, just it made me really like miss you and wish that you, you could be, we could be closer. I'm uh, only a phone sick. call
1: away, brother. Uh, I, I
0: don't know, but you know, I agree. I mean. like, it'd it'd be, be nice to you, have
1: a beer and shake hands and hug and see you and yeah. the kids too. And, and the uh, wife. Yeah, I get the, the boys get together, together, too. together. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. To
0: I'm sure our boys are very similar in yeah, terms of energy. It's going to be trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also like just to hear the stuff that you've gone through in terms of real life, like, Like you, there being there in El Paso, hearing those stories, hearing the 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 COVID response, like I learned a ton. I I I miss you. I, I miss I'm, you too I'm, buddy I'm just, i gotta uh, tell
1: one story though oh yeah, yeah shit. i told yeah, yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, a- and we can do this we can revisit in a few months too don't yeah. i'm i don't have that much on my schedule but <laughs> i needed to tell a story about you that i still tell okay. and you don't remember this i'm sure I but i was i was a senior ortho on call you were the senior in the icu i had just done my rotation quad joe is god kind of thing and you no. called me one day and you were like bill this is gonna sound crazy and i was like okay quad you know i expect this kind of thing from you he's like <laughs> you gotta come aspirate a knee and i was like okay that doesn't sound that crazy and then you're like well we're currently calling a code on her and i was like what and you're like listen it's the only possible source we have i need to see if this is if this is the problem or not so me and the junior you know ran up there and i told the junior listen i'm just going to do this because this is a critical situation quad is doing a code on this patient. And you guys were literally doing compressions. And I walked in, I was like, quad, you still want me to do this? And he was, you were like, yeah, I mean, we need to know and we don't have a source yet and we're doing everything else. So if you can do it, do it. And so I aspirated this knee while you guys were doing compressions. And I still tell (laughs) that story of like, wow, like that was crazy. But I mean, I guess, I mean, it needed to be done. You needed an answer. Oh my goodness. I totally don't remember that that. No, I'm sure you were obviously thinking of other things like running a code and all that, and you were running the ICU. So I'm sure that wasn't your only sick patient, but you know, it's just like crazy things that happen in medicine story. Absolutely. Uh, Oh, that's a legend. I love it. I still tell residents about, you know, aspirating a knee while they were doing compressions. (laughs) It does sound a bit crazy, but Uh, yeah, I mean, it was justified. And I mean, I wouldn't have done it and you wouldn't have asked if we didn't need that answer. And unfortunately I don't think it helped, but Uh, at that point, you're just trying to do everything you could to help that patient. And that's what we were doing to help you.
0: Yeah. Sometimes thinking outside the box a bit, you know, uh, I like to try and teach that to the kids for sure.
1: Yeah. You had your reasons to ask me to do it. Don't, don't ever think that it wasn't justified. It absolutely was just the circumstances were a little unique. Yeah, absolutely.
0: (laughs) Buddy, we're going to do this again for sure. Let me know. I mean,
1: I'm, I'm just a zoom call away and you know, we'll keep in touch. I'll keep listening to the podcast. You're doing great work. Uh, I really enjoy it. Uh, I'm trying to push it to you know my friends and colleagues up there in particular, because you're raising a lot of talk about issues that need to be discussed. And, and that's, I think, the best way to approach them. So I, I love it. You're doing great work, buddy. Great work.
0: You too, man. Thank you so much. And hey, Look, I'll be looking you up. But we'll be definitely making a trip to. Yeah, Texas. come on down.
1: Yeah, come on down. For we got real? room. We got a beach. We got ocean. Oh man, well, ocean! <laughs> it's not the prettiest island. ocean, but it ain't bad. Yeah, it's an island. It's got palm trees and stuff. Oh, I love yeah, it. Yeah, you'll you'll love it. And we're just just south of Houston. Uh, you fly into Houston, we'll come get you. Beautiful. Thanks, my <laughs> friend.
0: Quadcast Nation. What can I say? I was truly moved by that conversation with. My boy, Dr. Bill Weiss. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, at Quadcast. Leave a five-star rating on iTunes. Help us change that boogie. Leave a review. You know what I'm saying? It all helps, for real. Leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Check out our Selvin Wellness platform. Oh man, $99 for the year, $9.99 for the month. Just trying to reduce burnout amongst our healthcare providers. We're doing this. We're doing this together, people. SelvinWellness.com. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to connect again real soon. Peace.